So with that in mind, we're gathering around God's Word, open up to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 14. If you're using the Bible that looks like this, it's on page 974. So the Bible in your pew rack, it's page 974. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Galatians 5, verses 1 to 14. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you can be seated as we pray. Father, we've sung, show us Christ through the preaching of your word. And help us just to see Christ a little more clearly for him to be a little bit more prominent in our hearts. Open our eyes, open our hearts. We ask for the help of your spirit in this. In Jesus' name, amen. According to certain chiropractors, if you just get your spine right, your whole body will be healthy. According to certain nutritionists, if you just get your gut healthy, your whole body will be healthy. Well, you'll be glad to know that this is a church for both skeptics and adherents to such practitioners. Our bond here together is much deeper than whatever your view is of traditional medicine. I only bring these up because what they say about the body, rightly or wrongly, the Bible says about the soul. You see, there are certain beliefs we must hold to for our soul, for all of who we are to be healthy. 
And if we get those foundational beliefs wrong, the whole of us is affected. And in the passage I read this morning, verses 1 to 6, spell out those foundational beliefs that we must get right. So in the sermon this morning, we're going to really camp out on them and make sure we understand those six verses. We need to get the foundation of our soul healthy. Now, once we've really understood those verses, we'll touch on the remaining verses, which tease out an implication of the foundation and an intended result that comes from that healthy foundation. But verses 1 to 6 are critical. Healthy souls get them right. Unhealthy souls get them wrong. And what's being recommended in God's holy word this morning is not some trendy fruit cleanse or a weekly alignment. What's being recommended is the same thing God has recommended since Abraham. So I want to ask you this morning, even as I've tried to do in my own heart, to allow this passage to do a little inventory on you. See how healthy this foundational aspect of your soul is. So are you ready to dig in? Let's, let's just read verses 1 to 6 one more time because they're so important. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I want us to get the basic argument down. Embrace circumcision, and Christ is no advantage. But embrace faith, and Christ is the whole advantage. Embrace circumcision, and Christ is of no advantage. But embrace faith, and Christ is the whole advantage. We see this is the message in the interplay between verses 2 and 6. So Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then there's this interplay in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. You see, verse 2 is saying, except circumcision, Christ is no advantage. Verse 6, that in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. So when you embrace the fleshly way of circumcision, Christ is no advantage. But when you embrace Christ, the fleshly way is of no advantage. You see that? That's a basic argument. But in order to stand it well, we're going to obviously spend a little more time on it. And let's start up in verse 1. Not only because that's where Paul starts, 
but also because it's the basic appeal that inspires the whole passage. Paul pleads with the Galatians not to go back to their old slavery. What slavery is it talking about? Well, the beginning of chapter 4 made that clear for us. If you remember, slavery for Jews was the old system of the law that said, do this and you shall live. It was the yoke of that system upon them where they couldn't measure up, but here it was on them, weighing them down. For the Gentiles, the slavery was the elementary principles of the world, a system that says, prove your worth, prove your value, show you measure up in this ever-shifting standards of righteousness of of this world. And one of the great surprises of Galatians we've seen is that the Jews who are under the system of the law at one level are no different than Gentiles who are without the law because apart from Christ, both are enslaved to a system of performance. So the slavery is a slavery to this system of performance. But it's a terrible slavery because we are also enslaved to sin. Once Adam rebelled against God, sin reigned in the world and it reigns in our heart and it reigns over all people. So whatever the measurement is, whatever that system of performance is, whether it's God's perfect standard or some man-made knockoff, we're destined to fail. We're enslaved to a system of performance, but because we're also enslaved to sin, we can't measure up, and so it is a terrible slavery. I want to just help you see what I mean by whatever standard it is, we don't measure up. Before I got married, I knew the kind of husband I was going to be. And then I got married. And I realized I don't measure up. I fall short. You'd think I'd learn my lesson, but before we had children, I knew what kind of father I wanted to be. And then we had kids. And you can ask them. I don't measure up. I fall short. I don't don't say that to show how humble I am. Because it's not just my story. It's everyone's story, right? Whatever our standard is, we fail to measure up to it. Be it God's standard laid out in the system of the law or some man-made version. I mean, the only people who don't realize that they fall short are the people who reek of such arrogance and self-centeredness that they bring destruction everywhere they go. So I I hope you get what I mean when I'm talking about being enslaved. Enslaved to the system, enslaved to sin, and the terrible slavery that comes as a result of that. When you're someone who is enslaved to sin, then the system that governs you, the system of performance that hangs over you, enslaves you because it keeps whipping you. You're not good enough. You don't measure up. 
your failure. And maybe that whipping makes you try harder. It makes you want to give up, whatever. But it's whipping you. It's abusing you. I think that's part of why self-esteem is such a big deal today. It's our generation's attempt to silence the enslaving voice that is within us. we got to tell ourselves we're wonderful, good people, despite all the evidence to the contrary, and ultimately you can't actually silence that voice inside of us. So then, Jesus comes along, and He goes to the cross, and He breaks the power of sin, And in breaking the power of sin, He releases us from the shackles of our old workspace system that depends on our own efforts to win favor or good standing with God. We're freed from having to be good enough. We're freed from having to measure up. We're freed from whatever system is our master. Because of what Christ did on the cross, For freedom, Christ has set us free. What a beautiful thing. And yet there's something, even for us who know that freedom, there's something alluring about the old slavery. Have you ever heard of the term Stockholm Syndrome? It's when somebody's been kidnapped or taken captive and they develop a loyalty to their captor despite that captor's crimes against them. As it relates to the old systems of performance, we all suffer from Stockholm Syndrome. We prefer that our position before God be in our own hands because we like to control It just seems right for us to have to do it for ourselves. And so even after we've embraced Christ, we want to keep drifting back to whatever system it was that enslaved us. And that's what it was like for the Galatians. And so when false teachers come along and promise them that they could improve their standing before God, by adopting the Old Testament rituals and rites. They were taken in by it. At last, something I can do. At last, some tangible evidence that I can produce, something physical that I can root my confidence in and say, now I know I stand right before God because I'm following these festivals, because I've adopted circumcision, because I've adopted the practices of the Jewish people. That's what verse 1 is saying. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And that's what leads Paul to make his argument in verses 2 to 6. And that's in verses 2 to 4, we see the first critical cog of the argument. If you embrace circumcision, Christ is no advantage. And when I say circumcision, that just represents the more generally coming under the old system of the law, any old system of performance. If you embrace it, Christ is no advantage. And here's what we need to understand. From the very beginning, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right after Adam rebelled, 
From the very beginning, the Bible makes clear that God must be the one to rescue us. And he promises to do just that. It's clear from the pages of Scripture that this rescue would be accomplished by God, not by human effort. You know that phrase, you got yourself into this mess, you're going to have to get yourself out of it. That's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible's saying, you got yourself into this mess, and you can't get yourself out of it. We need a rescuer. And God promised to be that rescuer. Over and over again on the pages of Scripture, we see that mankind cannot get himself, they cannot get themselves out of the mess. And then over and over again, we see God promise to rescue. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we get clearer and clearer clues about the way God is going to bring about that rescue plan. And Paul has been taking pains to help the Galatians see that that's what the Scriptures did. He tells us that's why it was Abraham's faith that allowed, faith that allowed him to be counted righteous, not his impressive morality. He says that's why the promise of redemption preceded the giving of the law. He says that's why Abraham had two sons, because not all who are descended from Abraham are Israel. It's the line rooted in God's initiative, God's action, God's intervention, God's promise. They're the true Israel. And so here's the critical question Galatians is presenting to us. Are we believing the promise, clinging in faith to the hope of God's rescue? Or are we not? And if we are, if that is our whole hope, then we must renounce any dependence on our own effort. We don't get heaven because Jesus died for us and we're good enough. We don't get heaven because Jesus died for us and we're circumcised. We don't get heaven because Jesus died for us and we walked an aisle. We get heaven because our whole trust is in Jesus. Our whole trust. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's how Abraham was saved. That's how Rahab was saved. That's how Ruth was saved. That's how David was saved. That's how Nineveh was saved. Now, it's true that those did not know the full extent of God's rescue plan like we do, but to the extent God had revealed it to them, that was their hope. Confidence in God's saving promises was how they were saved then, and it's how we're saved today. Now, if that's all true, you might ask the question, why did God even institute the system of the law, the Mosaic system of the law? 
Why the rituals and rites? Why circumcision and the temple and the sacrificial system? To that, I refer you to our series in Hebrews. But God had many good purposes for giving the system of the law. Showed us that we needed a sacrifice to deal with our sin. Showed us that we needed a priestly mediator to intervene between God and us. And the system also reminded us that we weren't good enough. By showing us how high God's standards were, it showed us that we were actually enslaved to sin. The system also gave us a taste of the goodness of God's morality. What is his reign like? What is his justice like? And when you see the goodness of his system, you're like, there's something right about that. I could go on and on with the good purposes God had for the system of the law. But what we need to see is he had good purposes for that system. It fit right in with the promise to rescue, but it was never meant as a means in itself to make us right with God. It was meant to point us to the one who could make us right with God. The system was not the rescue plan. It was meant to remind us of our need for the rescuer. But now in Christ, the rescuer has come. And so why are we chasing after the system and going back to that old slavery? Have you ever been to one of those restaurants where they have uh, a wax version of the, of the food they offer? Maybe it's the desserts or maybe it's something at the front counter or something like that. Kind of make you want to eat the real thing. So imagine you're sitting down at this restaurant it's time for dessert, and you chose, you know, you saw the waxed tiramisu or whatever, and then the tiramisu comes to the table, and they put it on, and you push it away and say, I want to eat the wax one. <laughs> That's what we do when we go back to this system that was only meant to point us to Jesus. It's ridiculous, and it's Paul saying... It goes one step further. If you choose to take a bite out of the wax replica, you don't get to eat the good thing at all. Do you hear what Holy Scripture is saying? When you add human effort to Jesus, you lose Jesus. We are saved by faith. Faith alone, through Christ alone, or we're not saved at all. I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Our own efforts are not a nice little add-on to the saved by Jesus system. It's like adding unlimited chocolate to a Weight Watchers diet. It doesn't work anymore once you add that on. 
Add your own effort. I haven't tried that, by the way. Just... Add your own effort or works to your salvation, and you lose Jesus. And if you're not under the Jesus covenant, the new covenant of salvation, then you are under the Moses covenant for salvation, which means you have to keep it perfectly in order to be saved. The whole thing. And that's something none of us can do. But we like the security of human effort. It's something measurable. It's so tangible. And that's why you'll find so many false versions of Christianity today that are happy to talk about Jesus and the cross, but which also put in place a system of performance that can give us some sort of security that we are justified, that we are made right with God. It might be a system of rites and baptisms and confessions and lit candles. It might be a system that consists of a little formula prayer that as long as that formula is said at some point in your life, you're saved. It might be a system that creates a man-made moral checklist that assures you that as long as you keep this checklist, you're part of the in-group of Christians. The clear implication of this passage is that if you want to dabble in those types of systems, you're going right back to being slaved. And Jesus is no longer an advantage to you. You have fallen from grace. So verses 2 to 4 are telling us, embrace circumcision in Christ is of no advantage. Or to put it more generally, embrace any aspect of a system of performance and Christ is of no advantage to you. That was the first cog in this foundational argument. And verses 5 and 6 give us the second cog, which was the inverse. Embrace faith, and Christ is the whole advantage. You'll notice in 1 to 4, he says, you, you, you. But now when he's talking about the gospel and its truth, he says, we. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You see, right out of the gate, he says this righteousness, this right standing with God is a future gift, not a present wage. Let me say that one more time because I want us to get it. Righteousness is a future gift, not a present wage. Now, righteousness here means right standing with God, what we sometimes call justification. It means we are reconciled to God. Our, our sin is dealt with, and we're declared to be fully in the right before Him. Right standing with God. That's what righteousness means. And Paul is saying that this right standing with God is not something we can earn. But that's how most of us think. We think that our right living leads us to a right standing with God. 
like we've got to go through life and stack up good deeds. Here's a good deed. Here's a good deed. And we build this tower of good deeds that we can stand upon. So when the judgment comes and God is there, we can say, look at this tower of good deeds. Doesn't that mean I stand right before you? But it's clear from verse 5 that it's a gift. Look what it says. It doesn't say you work for it. It says you wait for it. Indeed, it says it's the very basis of our hope. Our hope for eternity is that because of Jesus' work on the cross, we're counted righteous. He spelled out this logic at the end of chapter 2. I'm kind of filling it in here for us. But those of you who've been with the study know, know what we looked at there, and you can look back at it. On the last day, when we stand before God in judgment, Jesus will say, I died for his sins. I gave her my righteousness. And so, because of that, we will dwell forever righteous before God in a right relationship with him. If you want something tangible, something concrete that you can cling to, that you can depend on so that you know you're right with God, don't make it be something you've done. It must be the work of Jesus that allows us to be declared righteous before God. That is our hope, and that's what we wait for that day of judgment when, when we know, because of the basis, on the basis of what Christ has done, I'm justified. So in the gospel, righteousness is a future gift, not a present age. In what righteousness do you take comfort? In your own, at least in part, or in Christ's 100%. Then look at what happens in verse 6. This is interesting. Because our righteousness is a future gift, our human efforts mean squat. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision doesn't mean anything. Uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Why? Because Christ means everything. When, he, when we put our faith wholly in Christ, not in our own efforts, None of the human measuring sticks, measuring sticks or systems matter at all. Take whatever system you're trying to follow, and your high score doesn't matter, and your low score doesn't matter. Because you have Christ. And He's gotten the perfect score on God's system. And then because of what He did on the Christ, He's counted that righteousness for us so that we can have that right standing with God. Embrace faith in Jesus, and Jesus is our whole advantage. Do you see then that there are two, two alternatives? Rely, even in some small way, on your own system of performance and lose the gift of righteousness promised you. You're left trying to meet God's perfect standards on your own. That's one. Or 
rely solely on Christ. Put your faith in Him. And then His righteousness is yours 100%. Your success and your failures don't affect your standing with God in any way. Brothers and sisters, this is the foundation I was talking about. It's the foundation for our salvation. And it's the foundation for any health in our souls. At the very core of our being, this has to be gotten right. If we get it wrong, the whole soul will become stunted and corrupt. But if we get it right, its health will slowly work its way all the way through us, which is why it says faith working through love. This faith producing this love. So that, that's the core of the sermon. That's where I wanted to camp out. That's what we had to understand. That's where we had to spend our time. But I do want to deal with the rest of the verses. Let's look briefly at how Paul, Paul follows up this core teaching. First, he draws out an important implication of it in verses 7 to 12, which is this. Be careful what teachers you embrace. Verses 7 to 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So Paul's been hammering and hammering home the importance of trusting Christ alone. He's hammering home that they must avoid the slavery of a works-based system. And then he's, he's like, and yet they're going to it, so i got to warn them about the teachers who are leading them there. Be careful who you embrace. He knows that someone or a group of somebodies is trying to lead these Galatians towards a so-called higher Christianity that adds the Jewish system to the work of Christ. And he says, this isn't from God. In fact, it's a dangerous leaven. And soon it will spread throughout. The leaven will work its way through all the dough. He says, God will bring the due penalty on these false teachers. But if we're not careful, the damage will be done. done. We'll be caught up in their destruction. You'll notice that Paul puts in a word about himself in verse 11. If I still preach circumcision, remember that's what he did when he was a Pharisee. Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul knows that the true gospel message will bring opposition. Because the message of the cross is an offensive one. Basically, you're telling everybody, you're not good enough. People want to be able to show how good I am. You're saying the cross means you're not, no matter how hard you try. And that is an offensive message. We cannot do enough good works to secure our standing with God and our place in the afterlife. That is a scandalous message to the world. And those who proclaim it will be mistreated. But Paul's so committed to pre preaching salvation by salvation by faith alone 
by grace alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, he says, I'm willing to suffer for it. So be careful of what teachers you embrace. Be careful what Christian authors you read. Be careful what Christian TV preachers you watch. Be careful what Christian podcasts you hit up. Be careful what Christian pastors you allow to fill this pulpit. If they are cultivating a healthy foundation like Paul was, embrace them with open arms. But if they are undercutting that healthy foundation, cast them out. When Paul says, I wish they would emasculate themselves, I actually think he really means it. I don't think it's mere rhetoric. I think he really wishes that these people would castrate themselves to show the folly of their way of thinking. Think about it. If their argument goes like this, oh, you're Christians? We want to get into this inner circle of a higher Christianity? Then be circumcised. Paul's saying, you know where this leads? What if you want to go to the next level and meet even further inner, inner circle? Take the next step and cut it all the way off. That's what he's saying. It's ridiculous. And he's saying, I wish they would just show how ridiculous it is. That's where this system takes you. He's, Paul is taking their thinking to its logical con conclusion to show the absurdity of the thought. And he wishes they would take that action to display to everyone how absurd their thinking is. We can't just perform to make God like us. So if grasping the gospel correctly is so critical, so foundational, we need to be careful what teachers we embrace. That's verses 7 to 12. Then Paul adds in verses 13 and 14, he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, through love, serve one another, which interestingly, in the Greek, it's the same word as slave from earlier. So just to be a little more faithful, but a little clunkier, through love, slave one another. And you read verse 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does reading that give you a little bit of whiplash? You're like, Paul, you've been saying no works, no works, no works, no law, no law, no law, no striving, no striving, no striving, no slavery, no slavery, no slavery. And now, work, fulfill the law, strive, slave, weed, what? 